count the ways. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. I'm never going to get this right before the poetry reading. That's it. That's perfect. I love how you just did that. But I didn't say a word. It was beautiful. The sound of silence. Exactly, <laughs> <laughs> but the audience Thursday night won't find it so amusing. You said it was a portrait reading, right? Yeah. Then just stand up there and read silently to yourself, okay? And take your bow and sit down. The audience will be totally grateful. Zachary! Mom! Zachary's being impossible again! Would you two calm down? Liz is getting all upset with all of this bickering. Sorry, Mom. I'll go give him some love. What's all this about? Nothing. Everything is something? So tell me. I was just giving Alexis some brotherly advice for her portrait reading, you know? <laughs> Were you teasing her? No. Did you know that when brothers tease their younger sisters, it means they love them? I do not. <laughs> Sorry, you do. It's hardwired into you. Mom. God created you to love and you, sir, love your sister. just walk in this house unannounced. Oh no, that's why I yelled before I came in to let you know I was here. And uh, my name's not Shirley, it's Sherry. Sherry Sanderson, from next door. I love Sherry. So, what's up? Well, I was just trying to teach my son about uh, loving his sister a little more. Oh, I love love. There's so many things to love. Things? Oh yes, I, I love my shoes. I love my car. I love playing bingo. I love my collection of ceramic cat figurines. I love applesauce and chocolate. Oh, that's nice. Uh, I was referring more to loving one another. Oh, Kelly, do you really mean it? You really do love me. It's true what they say. Love thy neighbor as thyself. Oh, I love the whole Bell family. Mr. Parsons, I don't know why we have to be separated by walls and hedges. I think that you, uh, I should just move in with you guys. Uh, you can't move in with us, Sherry. Oh, well, you guys can't move in with me because I have a very small place. It's only two bedrooms, and Whistle has claimed the spare bedroom for himself when he stays over for sleepovers. Whistle has sleepovers? I, did I say that out loud? Don't tell him that I told you. <laughs> Mom, you seen my reading? Oh, is this it? Elizabeth Barrett Browning. How do I love thee? 
Let me count the ways. What? The way you what? said that. It was perfect. That's because your mother enunciates. <laughs> it's like she understands the poem. I know a little bit about love. You know what? Your mom just told me that she loves me. Sherry. Oh, I should be going. Yes. Listen, when your mother announces that you're moving in with me, bring a sleeping bag. Okay. Let's hear this poem. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. I love you to the depth and breadth and height. That's how God loves us, Alexis. He set the example for true love and it's our choice to follow. Don't look to the wrong things for love, but rather look to our Heavenly Father who loves us all, and then you will know what true love is, both in giving and receiving. I love you, Mom. I love you too. Well, last week we introduced this new series that we're into, which uh, is focusing our attention on some really critical parts of life. Uh, we're, we're, it's, it's all about the core values, core needs that we have in our lives, and we, we defined five of those core needs. Remember what they are? No, that's okay. But they are love. We're going to look at that today, obviously. Uh, belonging, security, significance, and purpose. And what, what I suggested to you last Sunday was essentially this. If we find those core needs, needs that are core to our being met in God and in God alone, our lives will thrive. Conversely, if we find our core needs not satisfied, we're not going to do very well. And I went to some lengths to describe that, what that not very well looks like. But essentially what I was trying to say, I thought I'd just say it in a little more simple fashion today. Our lives can be significantly messed up because the core needs which we have in life aren't met. And to some degree, all of us are in that place today. Some degree, to some degree or other, we are looking for love in all the wrong places. We're looking for belonging and for security and for significance and for purpose. And we haven't taken hold of it. We haven't found it yet in a way that will really lead us to that life that God has for us because we have found our needs met in Him. We're going to talk this morning about probably the most foundational of these needs, and that need is to be loved. I want you to think about yourself, and I want you to recognize that you were created by God with a need for love. You know that? That makes sense, doesn't it? You just kind of intuitively know that that reality is there. We all long to be loved by someone. All of these core needs are good needs. God has wired them into our being in order that we might be drawn toward the one who can satisfy our needs, God himself. But of course, what happens, as I've described, is we turn away from the one who can really satisfy our needs and we seek after those needs to be met in other things. And God is calling us, my friends. I hope and I pray that through this series, you will find in a deeper fashion your deep needs being satisfied in your God. 
And the statement that I want to make today, and this is probably not going to be news to very many of you uh, on one level, and that is that God loves you. My question for today is, how much do you really believe that? Like deeply, profoundly believe that God loves you. Not in your head, but in your heart. So, we're going to jump in. I'm going to read to you Ephesians 3, verse 14 to 19, and to see what, what Paul writes about this reality. He says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your, note it, inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. My friends, I want to tell you that is a powerful passage. What Paul is saying, what God is communicating as he inspired Paul to write those words is that um, we need to know the reality, the profound reality of God's love for us. Two things about this passage that I want to pick out that are of significance. Number one, this, this word to know, that he, we would know the breadth and length and height, and height and depth of God's love for us. I've told you this before, but in the Greek, this word is not about factual knowledge. It's not about, you know, if you ask me, well, how many kids do you have? And I say, well, three. You know, it's, it's factual. It's not about what day is today. It's Sunday. That's just a fact. This word in Greek is not referencing factual knowledge. It is, re it is referencing a deep, intuitive, heartfelt knowledge which leads a person to know that they know that they know in the depths of their being that God loves them. That they are convinced that this is actually true. And again, I ask you, are you there? Do you believe that deeply? so much that it has transformed your life. Second thing I want to talk about from this, this, uh, this text this morning, and we'll move on to others, but it is the idea of dimension in the verse. Paul says that, that he wants these people to know the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of God's love for them, which surpasses knowledge, factual knowledge. It says that, 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 that there is a, a potential for the expansion of our understanding of the knowledge of God and his love for us in a very significant way. So I put these boxes, I got these boxes and we wrapped them up in white paper because I think what's being suggested is that there are some people, even people who know and love Jesus and who have been told a hundred times that God loves them, but their breadth and length and height and depth understanding of God's love is this big could be some folks in this church. In spite of having been in a relationship with God for a long time, that's how much, in terms of dimension, that some folks know and understand and are, are profoundly impacted by the knowledge of God's love. It's little. Not that there's anything wrong with being little, but that's beside the point. Then, uh, then there are some folks who's... <laughs> took a little while on this side of the room, I gather. 
Then there's some folks, the dimension of God's love, if you would, the volume, can you think it in those terms? You know, the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth of God's love. In their minds, their understanding, their knowledge of it is this big. It's greater than it was maybe 10 years ago. It's more than it used to be. They've had experiences of God. They've come to a deeper, understa deeper understanding of God's love for them. It's this size, but not more. And, of course, there are people who, for whatever reason, an encounter of God, uh, the Spirit moving in their lives as they have read His Word, seeing God's love poured out into their lives, as Romans 5 says, God has poured His love into our lives. The, the, the dimension of their understanding, of their knowledge of God's love is this big. And, and I'm asking you today, how, what are the dimensions of your knowledge, uh, your understanding, your deep belief that God absolutely loves you? Is it little or is it big? What Paul is saying is, the Lord wants that knowledge, that deep, intuitive, heartfelt understanding of his love for you to increase. And that's what I want to challenge today. That's what I want to move you toward today as we think about Scripture and what the Scripture has to say about this. Um, the reality is we can grow. And I don't care how far you've gone in this journey, you can know more. Because the reality is that God loves you immensely. John 3.1 says that he has lavished his love upon you. You know, the text in 1 John 4 we're going to talk about says that God has demonstrated his love for you in Jesus. Uh, you know, God, Romans 5, he has poured out his love upon you. And here's the reality, my friends. God can have done all of this. God can have this deep and abiding and profound love for you and for me. But that doesn't mean that we actually believe it. It doesn't mean that we actually receive it in such a fashion that it transforms who we are. I think there are a lot of people, and I'm going to tell you why in a minute, but there are a lot of people that you know, hold God's love at arm's length. They hear that God loves them. They're told that over and over and over again, probably from people like me on Sunday mornings, and you read it in the Bible again and again and again, but, you know, we keep it at bay, not really wanting to believe it deep inside. Is that you? Not allowing this truth to penetrate the heart. Not allowing the truth to move from the mind to the heart so that we really believe it deeply. I want to explain what I have come to understand is the main reason why we don't embrace the love of God, while we don't really understand it deeply and profoundly, and why we don't allow it to transform our lives. And that is this. It is based in the idea of how we have experienced, how we have experienced love as a child how we have perceived love as we have learned it, as we have grown up from our parents. Let me explain this to you. The love that you grew up with from your mom and or your dad was an imperfect love. That's because they were or are imperfect people. They're not able to love you perfectly, and that's why these core needs, and this one in particular, cannot be met in anyone but God. But as you experience their love, you experience, quite frankly, imperfect love. Let me illustrate that a little bit. Some of you grew up with understanding love as a conditional love. You behave yourself, I'll love you. 
you don't behave yourself, I will withdraw my love from you. And if you grew up with that, and if that formed your perception of love, it's really easy to hear me say God loves you, and what do you think? Well, God's love is conditional. I behave myself, he'll love me. (laughs) But if I don't, he won't anymore. Some of us here likely have grown up, and rather rather than growing up with a conditional love, they've grown up with with, um, a love that has been expressed to them, but also which has come with a critical spirit. I love you, but you know... You're never good enough. Look at that fault, and you blew it there again. And we, and we can easily then transform that understanding of love, that perception of love, into our relationship with God, and we think that, God, yeah, God loves me, but he's always looking down at me with a finger pointed because I'm never good enough. There are some people who have grown up with an inconsist, incon, inconsistent love, You know, mom or dad, they love me one day, but not the next, depending on mood or circumstance. And we kind of think maybe, is that what God's love is like? Is God kind of fickle in the love that he shows toward us? One more example. Some of us have grown up with a controlling and a demanding love. I love you, but you better do it my way. And we can sit back and we think, you know, God loves me, but really what he wants deep down is to control me. You see, we develop this understanding of love in our childhood and then we project it onto God. We think that's how God loves us. And when we're told God loves us, we put up the barriers and we hold out our hand and we keep God's love and an understanding of God's love at bay. And what we really need to do is come to an understanding of the biblical and perfect love of God for us. And we've got to allow that truth to penetrate to our hearts because when that truth penetrates to our hearts, our deep human core need for love will be satisfied in him. My experience, honestly, is that a lot of us have a pretty limited understanding, truly, of God's love for us. You see it? One way I want you to to process this a little bit this morning is imagine you are in a room with God. You can close your eyes if you wish if it helps you to imagine this. If it doesn't help, then don't bother. I won't think you're sleeping. But if you do, I want you to imagine you're in a room with God. He's in the far side of the room to you. And God notices you. And he starts to walk toward you. In that moment, what are you feeling? What do you feel? Are you comfortable? Are you excited that God is coming to talk to you? (laughs) Are you eager to be with him? Or, when you look into his face, do you see disappointment? Do you see judgment? Because you don't please him? Do you see anger? Do you see this look of, of, of disappointment that says somehow you're not good enough? What do you see? Do you see a God who is punishing and essentially unhappy with you? And because of all that, what do you want to do? As God comes toward you, do you want to run toward him? 
or do you want to run away and hide? See, the answer to that question, I believe, will tell you a fair bit about what you believe about the love of God and about God himself. And I would suggest to you that a lot of people, a lot of believing Jesus-following people at least have some of this negative belief in their heart about God's love toward them. That somehow God is not for them, but that he's against them. And this is where I want to bring the main text to you today from 1 John chapter 4. It's where it comes into play. Let me read this for you. 1 John 4 verses 17 and 18. This is how love is made complete among us. How it gets bigger. And it moves to that point of completion. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made, note it, perfect in love. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. You see, what this verse is telling us is that when God loves you, when, whether we perceive it or not, the love of God has no judgment toward you in it. He has no disapproval toward you. He has no intent toward punishing you. There is no critical spirit in his mind and in his heart as he gazes upon you. There is no thought that you are not good enough. It's just not there. <clears throat> it doesn't exist. That as God thinks of you and in his mind and in his heart, everything is positive and there is nothing of the negative. His love is pure. God is not against us. God is for us, the Bible tells us. There is nothing in his heart toward us but pure love. Now, my sense is, if I'm correct in my assessment that I've described to you, is a lot of you don't easily embrace that. My sense is that I've described this love to you that has none of the negative that so often dwells in our minds toward us, a lot of you will hold that at bay. You will, you will put up a hand and you'll say, whoa, 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 I'm not, going to, I'm not going to embrace that. I'm not going to allow that to settle into my heart. Well, here's what I want to do when we did a lot of this last week, and I'll do a little bit of, a, a bit of again today. I want you to think of the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden before sin, so I'm talking Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, the serpent, evil, sin all happened in chapter 3 and following. I want you to think about those days when Adam and Eve walked and experienced the love of God. They had not sinned, so there was no reason for God to be against them, no reason for God to be critical of them, no reason for God to somehow think they weren't good enough. All he did was delight in them, his creation. All he did was enjoy being with them and enjoy them. Everything, if you would, was positive toward them. I want to tell you this. 
And if you take nothing more from this point away today, I will be happy. Because of Jesus Christ, because of his death on the cross where he took your sin and my sin to himself, because of his resurrection, we are forgiven. Sin has been removed from us, the Bible says, as far as the east is from the west, and it is gone. God forgives us, and the Bible says he then forgets. And we get to live with God as Adam and Eve lived with God because of the sacrifice of Christ, because of the forgiveness of our sins, as if we had never sinned in the first place. We get to live in the garden in Genesis chapter 2. Do you believe that? That when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin? But what theologians call the righteousness of Christ? Your sin was placed on Jesus. Your punishment was laid on him, we are told. He took your penalty, if indeed you have trusted him by faith. And your sin is, so the Bible says, gone. So when God looks at you, what does he see? Righteousness. Holiness. Sinlessness. See, I want to tell you, my friends, God delights in you today as he delighted in Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2. God is eager to be with you and to enjoy you as he was eager to be with Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2. It's just the reality of this faith of ours. And I want to tell you, you can choose to live in Genesis 3 if you wish. Having sinned, feeling the shame of sin, hearing God come toward you so much so that you have to run away, run away and hide because you're afraid of his judgment of you. You want to do that, you can do it. But that living is a denial of the cross of Christ. And that living is a denial of the grace of God. And that living is an absolute denial of the forgiveness that Jesus has given to you in and through his death. We get to live like Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2, not Genesis chapter 3. What does this produce? I want to take you to one of my favorite verses of the Bible. You've heard it before, and I'm sure you'll hear it again. Zephaniah 3, 17. Listen to this. The Lord your God is with you. Can I say it? Because he loves you. The mighty warrior who saves, he will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you. Do you believe it? But will rejoice over you with singing. I want to tell you, if we can just take hold of these truths, it will transform our understanding of God, and it will transform our relationship with him, and it will transform our life. Because in and through this dynamic truth, which penetrates from our heads to our hearts, we will come to believe more profoundly. Breadth, length, height, and depth. We will have a deeper knowledge of the love of God for us. See, it says that he is with us. I will never leave you or forsake you, Jesus said. He loves you that much. You will never go through any challenge or difficulty in life without Jesus by your side, helping you. He is the mighty warrior who saves. 
Whatever your challenge, whatever your difficulty, Jesus will fight for you and bless you. It's in his heart to just pour blessing upon blessing upon blessing into your life. And hasn't he done it? says here that he will take great delight in you. Oh, and to me, this is where the rubber hits the road. Do you know the Lord delights in you? <laughs> he delights in you. Delight, high degree of pleasure and enjoyment. I don't think most Christians have a clue about this. He delights in you. He, when, when God spends time with you, when God attends to you in his mind and in his heart, he has a high degree of pleasure and enjoyment. He doesn't look at you disappointed and unhappy. He doesn't look at you and say, man, I wish he or she were different than they are. He is pleased. He celebrates who you are. In love. Pure love. What does it say? He, in his love, he will no longer rebuke you. See, because of Jesus, that rebuke is done. It's over. <laughs> There's nothing to rebuke in your life because you've been forgiven of your sin, past, present, and future. And God no longer rebukes his children. What does it say in the end? That he will rejoice over you with singing. You believe that? That when the God of heaven and earth attends to you in his mind and in his heart, you bring him joy. So much so he can't contain it. He has to sing as he rejoices over you. I want to tell you, my friends, these biblical truths that I'm describing to you today are not what most Christians believe about God's love toward them. Probably the more legalistic environment you've grown up in, the harder it is to believe what the Bible is saying today. I read a little while ago in a book, I'm reading about joy, actually, and it says this. It just caught my attention. It's like, whoa, that God is thrilled because his people are willing to spend 10 minutes with him every morning. you believe that? And when we're willing to just take 10 minutes of our day at the beginning of the day, which was the comment in the book, and we sit down and we open the book and we enter into the presence of God and we, we receive his word and we exercise our relationship with him in prayer, God is thrilled to be with you. And he is thrilled that you are being with him. See, what I'm asking you to believe, maybe change your belief about, is who God is and the implications of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus for your life. And I'm asking you to embrace this truth, to not hold it at arm's length, to not push away this biblical reality, to not hide from God ashamed of who you are and afraid of his judgment upon you and, and concerned about his believing you're not good enough. That is just not biblical. God wants you to enjoy him, to celebrate him, just as he enjoys and celebrates you. He wants you to know the breadth and the length and the height and the depth 
of his love toward you. Now, I've told you, uh, I told you last week, and we're going to focus upon this as we go through this series about how we can consider parenting in light of what we're talking about. I began this way, didn't I? Imperfect love produces an imperfect understanding of, of what love is, which we project onto God, which then causes us to believe things that aren't true about him or about our relationship with him. How do we parent today and grandparent so much so that we set our children up to know that they are loved by mom and dad, but also by God? Number one, we need to recognize that we need to prove to them that they are loved. I do not believe children are born into this world knowing they're loved. I have come to the deep conviction, and I'll justify it biblically in a minute, it's not just my opinion, that they believe the lie of Satan and not the truth of God because they are born with a sinful nature. They are born not knowing the truth of God. They are born as descendants of Adam and Eve. And they need to be convinced of the truth, and that is that they are loved. And they need to experience that love through mom and or dad. And in time, when that time comes for them to grapple with whether God loves them in the ways that I'm describing, for those who are loved well, it'll be easier for them to believe that God loves them like this. So what do you do? <laughs> this is an easy one. Moms, dads, grandparents, I want to love your kids like God loves them. <laughs> that love will never be a perfect love because we're human and we're imperfect. But my goodness, we can look at what God has done toward us and we can begin to love our kids more in the way that God has come to love us. How do you do that? Number one, you tell them. You know, the Bible is absolutely filled with the word of God, God speaking to us with the message that God loves us. Look at 1 John 4, 7. This is a great passage to dig into in, in, in these regards. Dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who has been born of God knows God. Love comes from God. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. The, the, the verses are abundant. God has spoken that truth into our lives through Scripture. And I want to tell you this. If we want to love our kids the way God has loved us, we have got to tell them and tell them often that they are loved. Never think that you don't need to use words to tell your kids that you love them. We looked at a passage from Proverbs earlier in the summer. I, I believe it's Proverbs 17. It says that words have the power of life and they have the power of death. And this is one of the ways that the power of life can enter into the heart of a child. Tell your children that you love them and tell them that a lot. And I don't care what age they are, by the way. There's an older generation maybe represented here of people who never have told their children, I love you. You know what I have to say to you? Get over it. Do it. Have the courage to do what will breathe life into your child, even though your child might be 40 or 50 or even 60 years of age. But when our children are little, tell them. Tell them <laughs> what you think about them. Tell them that they are precious to you. Tell them that what you can see in their lives that God has created in them. Tell them that they are your priority. Tell them that they are so, so important to you. Don't let your kids be confused about this. 
Speak it into their minds and speak it into their hearts. Secondly, we have to demonstrate the love. 1 John 4, 9 and 10 says this. This is how God showed his love among us. Note it. God didn't just tell us that he loved us. He showed it. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You see, my friends, God didn't just speak love. He proved it to us by acting for us. For us. And he did that primarily by the sacrifice of his son. He sent Jesus into this world to die on a cross so that our needs might be met. Listen, kids are sharp. You probably know this. I'm not going to say anything that you don't know, but you know what? You can tell your kids that you love them, but if your life doesn't back up your words, they will not believe the words. They'll believe the opposite. And we have got to demonstrate to our children the fact that we love them. How do you demonstrate to our children that we have loved them like God has demonstrated this reality to us? Number one, we make them our priority in life. One of the great priorities of our lives The Lord made us a priority when, my goodness, he sent Jesus to die on our behalf. He said to us, you were important to me. You are precious to me. You are a priority, and I will not leave you alone in your sin. I am coming to save you. My friends, we have to make our kids a priority. We really do. And let me say this before I describe it in a little greater detail. Moms and dads, especially when your kids are little, I'm 60 years old. I've been through it. I get it. You've only one shot at this. You really do. And you don't have that many years to do it. So make this, make them your priority. Make their heart your priority. Make proving to them your love a priority in your life. And what what can we do to make them a priority? We can sacrifice for them in many ways. But one of the ways I want to challenge this congregation today uh, in terms of sacrifices, to sacrifice for them our time. Think a little bit about what your priorities are in life. Because whatever your priorities are, that's where your time is going to go. And as you think about making your children your priority, I want you to grapple with this one. Because there are a lot of potential priorities in life that are going to take us away from prioritizing our children. And the biggest one in this culture, and I've said it before, I think in this part of the world, is our work. This is not easy to do, by the way. This is tough stuff. But there are a ton of people who prioritize work. They think that their purpose is work, and we're going to deal with that later. They think that the most important thing that they do in life is to go to work and to succeed. I want to tell you, Somewhat well-known statement, no one ever on his or her deathbed wished they had spent more time at the office. It's always the opposite. And I want to suggest to you, your priority is not work. And a lot of people today put a priority on things. Because the harder I work, the more money I have, and then the more things I can buy, the right house, the right car, the right toys, the right vacations, whatever it may be. That's where priority goes. 
in many instances in our culture. Sometimes it's our friends and our social activities. You know, whatever the case might be. My friends, our priority needs to be our children. Our our priorities, you know, when we really think about them, need to be rearranged. It's a paradigm shift that's required in this instance. And we need to think again about where we will put our time because where you put your time communicates to people how much a priority they are. It, It communicates to them how valuable they are to you. And I'm going to say something that might challenge a lot of people here today, especially in those years when you're building career and at the same time you have young children in the house. Remember, what kids learn about themselves and about others in the world and about God, mostly they learn within the first five years of life, especially if your children are in those years. We have got to turn away from other priorities so that we might simply spend time and be with them that they might know our love. How did Adam and Eve know the love of God in the Garden of Eden? Because God came and he walked in the garden with them. He prioritized them. And he gave them time. And what I want to say today, my friends, if you are so busy that you're out a lot at night and you're out a lot of the weekend doing other things, it is time to change your life. That you might prioritize not only your children, but potentially your marriage and other things as well. So yes, we need to sacrifice a lot of things in order to give time to our children. We sometimes have to sacrifice our preferences. Can I say it again? The years that you need to do this, it's not forever. You can golf again when you're 50 (laughs) or whatever. But in order to spend time with kids, we've got to enter into their world. Do you know that? It's not like we need to say, okay, I'm spending time with you, uh, my daughter or my son. Now come and do what I enjoy. Let's go to the driving range. (laughs) Don't mean to pick on golfers. We have to enter into their world, and as we enter into their world, we're saying to them, you are precious to me. So dads, you might need to have that tea party once in a while with your little girl. Right? How many women resonate with that comment? You got to do it. And if it's throwing a ball or going fishing, whatever it is, whatever they long to do, do it on their terms. Enter into their experience of life and say to them, not only with your lips, I love you, but by how you you live, I love you and you are precious to me. And I'm going to give you my time and my attention, my presence, that you might know my love. So we speak it, we back up what we say with how we live, thirdly. Can I put it this way? Parents, delight in your children. Delight in them as God delights in you. Now that's not always easy because these little things that God has given to us are very fallible little things who sin. (laughs) Sometimes it's hard to delight in our children, agreed? Like, have a teenager. You all know. (laughs) Never mind when they're little. But I want to say to you, those little things that God has given to you, they are a gift of God. And whether you always feel like it or not, these little ones are precious 
in the sight of God and allow them to be precious in your eyes too. When they sin, yes, we have to discipline. It's part of being a parent. But when that is done, forgive them and move on and be gracious to them as God is gracious to us. Forgive and forget. Celebrate who God has made them to be, not maybe what we want them to be. Love them in their fallibility and never give up on them. Always be there for your children. The Lord has said to us, I will never leave you or forsake you. Never leave them. Never forsake them. In conclusion, my friends, what am I asking for today? What is the word of God calling, to, to, calling us to today? Number one, it is for us to rethink our understanding of God's love for us. We all have the potential of moving from this to this to this to whatever God blesses us with in time. Let us stop thinking that we live in Genesis chapter 3. Let us abandon the idea. Let's, let's reject the idea. Let's jettison the idea that somehow God looks upon us and he judges us and he's unhappy with us and that somehow he only loves us if we act well. And let's realize these truths that have been described today. God is crazy about you. He celebrates who you are. He delights in you. And he loves to be with you when you give time to being with him. And then secondly, can I use the word from 1 John chapter 3? Mums, dads, grandparents. Can we lavish our love upon our kids? Can we make it a priority? Can we turn away from lesser things? To love these ones whom God has given to us to love. That when the day comes, their perception of love, which still will need some correction, <laughs> will allow them relatively easily to see and to understand the love of God because they've experienced something like it through us. Do you see the power of this? the significance of it, the way that we can set a child up for a lifetime because as we talked about last week, they're looking at life through a grid, a grid in which their need for love is met first of all in mom and dad and then in time through God, the God who only can ultimately satisfy their core need of love. My friends, what I'm saying is we need to be like God to the extent that we can and then we need to let God take care of the rest. So, know that you are loved according to the biblical definition of love, and I've given it to you today. And out of that love, go and love your kids in the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, it, it's actually hard at times for us to believe that you love us like this that you delight in us, that you celebrate us, that we bring you incredible joy, that you don't see our sin, but you only see the righteousness of Jesus. That God, help us to believe it. I pray for every person in this room today that you will change their perception of your love for them so much so that they will know that they know that they know that they are loved by God. 
And Lord, help us to turn that around and love our children, no matter what age they might be, but especially when they're little. God, help us to love them like you love us. Help us to set them up for life in a good way. Thank you for your love, God. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for the time we've been able to spend with you today. Change us because of these truths, we pray. Help us not to fight them, to allow them to penetrate from our head to our heart for us. In Jesus' name we pray.